as the season draws closer into December and people start putting their lights out on their houses and nativity scenes go up and there's always, you know, Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus and the shepherds and animals and the wise men and the gifts that they brought to Jesus. And so I, every year I think about how can I, how can I talk about the Christmas story in a new, fresh way? And so this year, God just kind of laid upon my heart about the gift. What is the gift? What, what is the greatest gift that God could have given to us? And what is the meaning that, and the significance of the gifts that were brought to Jesus by the wise men? What is the purpose behind those gifts? What do they tell us about Jesus? What do they symbolize? What are they unveiling on that day that those gifts were brought to Joseph and Mary? And how does that relate to the gift that God has given to us through Christ? And how does that relate to the gift that God has left for us to share with the world, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ? So we're going to spend five weeks on this topic of the gift. We're going to look at the three gifts that the wise men brought. We're going to look at the gift of Christ and the gift of the gospel, that message that God has left for us to take to the world, not just during Christmas, but all throughout the year. And so really, this is what our International Mission Board is about. It's about taking the greatest gift that God has given to us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and taking that to people in love and drawing their attention to this gift because they are receiving acts of love through our missionaries who are out on the field. So we're going to look at the story here um, in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, they ask a very important question, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel." And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, hey, go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, I know that every nativity scene has the wise men included in it, but that is not totally accurate. The wise men, the Magi, showed up probably about a year or two after Jesus' birth. You will note they went to a house. They did not go to a manger. And the Greek word for child here is for a child, a toddler, not for an infant. And so it was later that they showed up with these gifts that they brought to Jesus. You'll notice very carefully that they first worshipped him and then they presented him with the gifts, not the other way around. And so here is Jesus, 
somewhere a year, two years old, the Magi show up. By this time, Jesus has already been taken to Jerusalem to be circumcised at the temple, and Mary's gone through her purification, and, and maybe Jesus is even toddling around by this time. I don't know. And some people say, well, how do we know that they were, these Magi were men? Why, why couldn't they not have been women? Well, because if they were, had been women, they would have brought more practical gifts, like things like diapers and passies and bottles and onesies and burping cloths and one of those, you know, snot sucker things they use on babies. I, I never get that. I, 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 even with my grandchildren, I'm like, why do you think they cry when you put this big old ball up their nose and you start sucking stuff out of their nose and you wonder why they get all upset and cry? Those are the kind of gifts that, that women would have brought, but the Magi, they brought what seems to be very impractical gifts, what seems to be gifts that really have no significance or bearing upon the birth of Jesus and what it is Joseph and Mary are facing at this time and what their needs might be. We know that they were very poor because when they brought Jesus to the temple, they offered their offering you know, the, an offering, not a lamb, but of turtle doves, something that people who are in poverty would give. And so all of a sudden, these guys show up, and they have gold, and they have frankincense, and they have myrrh. What is the significance? What is the meaning? How does this tie to Jesus and his birth and to the needs of Joseph and Mary? Well, uh, not only were these gifts very valuable in that day and time, but they were very practical and deeply spiritual. So just kind of give you an overview, I mean, these images kind of foreshadow what Jesus would represent. Gold in and of itself was valuable. As you know, as we continue to read in the story that Herod is going to be after Jesus, right? He finds out he has a rival king that has shown up in his little kingdom, and therefore he says to the Magi, hey, let me know when he was born so I might come and worship him. But that wasn't true, and so the Magi are warned by God to not go back to Herod, and Herod then throughout the region has children, males you know, two years and younger put to death. And so God warns Joseph and Mary prior to that happening, they need to flee to Egypt. How are they going to fund this trip to Egypt? Well, the gold is going to provide them with the means, obviously a very practical means, to fund their trip and their stay in Egypt for however long that had to be. And so gold also represents royalty. Gold represents kingship. And so this is where we're going to kind of land today as we look at the gold under the title of this message is the one, the only true king. And so the gold is representation of Jesus as he is to be king of the Jews. And so this is really the emphasis of Matthew's entire gospel is Jesus as king. And then there is frankincense. And frankincense uh, has many purposes. It was like an antiseptic. It was a practical gift that could help heal sickness and treat wounds. It was also an oil that the priests would use when they were offering sacrifices. And they would put it on the altar of incense. And the smoke rises up representing the prayers of God's people. And God smells this, and to him it's a sweet-smelling aroma to him. And so this also is symbolizing the priesthood of Jesus. 
that Jesus is our high priest, that he is our mediator between us and God. And then the myrrh, obviously, is representative of Jesus as a suffering servant or Jesus as the Lamb of God. The, the baby Jesus that Mary held in her arms was just that. It was, it was the Lamb of God who would become the sacrifice, the gift of God to humanity by which we can be forgiven of our sins and cleansed from all of our unrighteousness so that we might enter into relationship with God, our Heavenly Father, who created us. Now, we're going to discover more about these wise men along the way and King Herod, but suffice it to say, they're looking for someone. And notice very closely what their question is. Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? A king, not just any king, but the king of kings, the king behind all kings. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the, by the blessed and the only almighty God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so Paul states this in a very, very powerful way. Now, when you think about a king who is being born into the world, you're thinking about a king, you know, kingship is not, um, you know, something that we have dealt with in our lifetime, but in the day there were, there were many kings, and certainly there were many kings through the Roman Empire that ruled over the nation of Israel at that moment in their history. And kings are supposed to have everything. They're supposed to be powerful. They're supposed to be rich. They're supposed to have armies that will protect them. They're supposed to have servants that will serve them and a palace that will shelter them, that will, you know, their every whim is, is attended to. Yet our God, in a very unusual, in a very unexpected way, brings a new king into the realm of humanity but he's a king unlike any other king. It's not the expected king that Israel would have had. They would have expected a king coming from God to, you know, throw off the yoke of Rome, their oppression over Israel through a king that would be born in wealth and surrounded by a palace and, and have an army at his beck and call. And yet this is not the king who came. This is a king who entered into the world in a feeding trough. This is a king who entered into a world with a couple from an unexpected place of Nazareth. It was Nathaniel who said, is there anything good that can come out of Nazareth? No one had predicted that the king of glory, the son of God, would befriend prostitutes and touch lepers and love those who that the religious institutions had rejected around them. They never imagined a king who would choose an uneducated fisherman and you know, despise tax collectors and rebellious troublemakers to be his followers and those who would pick up the mantle and move forward with his kingship as they begin living their lives out in this newfound kingdom called the kingdom of God. And no one ever imagined a king who would forgive a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery and would forgive this woman for what she has done. And he would confront the hypocrisy of the Pharisees over and over again, the religious leaders of his day, and overturn tables in the temple and, and say that this is my father's house. This is the, to be a house of prayer, not a, a house of, 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 
commerce any longer. And they never imagined the king of the Jews would ride into Jerusalem upon a donkey of all creatures as the people gathered around the outcast and those who were on the overlooked and the immoral ones as they bowed before him and laid down palm branches and cried out as he comes into the city of Jerusalem that he is They're acknowledging him as their king, but yet these very ones who acknowledge Jesus as their king would very shortly after that, uh, they they would yell, crucify him. And who knew that this king of glory, this king of creation would then all of a sudden be hung upon an instrument of torture, dying a death that only criminals died, being scourged and stripped naked and a crown of thorns thrust upon his head and hanging on this cross, hanging and suspended between heaven and earth and people are mocking him and spitting upon him and yet he cries out to his father in heaven, have mercy on them, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing and all of a sudden the sky goes dark and the earth begins to shake and Jesus says it is finished and into your hands fall. Father, I commend to you my spirit. Who knew this would be the kind of king, this would be the kind of gift that God would bring into the world to clean up its mess? No one expected a king to die a shameful death in front of the people who were mocking him. And when he breathed his last breath and the day went dark, that king was put in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, some women went to finish the burial process only to find out that that king has arisen from the dead and that king is sitting upon his throne in heaven today. Who inaugurated this king? Was it the people of Israel? Was it the Roman government? It was God himself who inaugurated this king. And the very day he did that was the day of Jesus' baptism. John the Baptist had been crying in the wilderness that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he spotted Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me, and John knew that the kingdom of God was about to be established on earth, and Jesus was the king of that kingdom. And it was at that time that the dove descended, like the spirit, like a dove descended upon Jesus, and the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, hence the words beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. God was investing Jesus, with the ancient crown of the nation of Israel, Jesus was formerly entering into the office of king of the Jews. Now, this ties all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back to the Exodus event, when Pharaoh is confronted by Moses, and God says to Pharaoh, in essence, Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. You will let them go. Because they will come out from among you and they will serve me. It was a, a, a very direct declaration of fierce love, the fierce love that God had for Israel. And he served Pharaoh notice that if you mess with them, you are messing with me. This, this is my son. I will fight for them. 
And years later, that designation, God's son, was placed upon the kings over Israel who were their representatives, who were their mediators between God and themselves, who were to rule and to reign with righteousness and justice, although many of the kings did not fulfill that that promise of doing so. But nonetheless, when Jesus comes on the scene, He is referred to as the Son of God. The Son of God is the title that goes back to the kings of Israel. And what God was saying in essence, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He was saying in essence, your king, the king you have been awaiting for, for over 400 years, your king has now arrived. He is on the scene and his name is Jesus. He is the gift. I'm giving to the world. Now the question always begs to be asked. How do we respond to this gift? How do we respond to it? There are three responses we see in this story that I want to touch on briefly. The first one is you can respond like Herod, and Herod was in opposition to the king. Herod was kind of a a unique king. He, he, he built a lot of buildings and did a lot of things for the nation of Israel so that they would like him. But on the other hand, he was nuts. I mean, he was super jealous. He was um, narcissistic. He, he was, uh, I mean, he, he believed everybody was plotting against him, seeking to overtake his, his throne. I mean, he had his own family members killed. And I mean, he, he just did a lot of things. And so when he receives word that there is this one, the Magi, you know, where is this one who's born king of the Jews? He's thinking to himself, well, where is this rival king who is going to seek to overtake my throne? Now, he doesn't know that this king who has arrived is a mere baby. He he doesn't know the age of the king. He just knows that there are magi who have come from the east who are seeking this rival king. And so he rises up in what? Opposition. That's why he says, come, tell me when this took place so that I might come and worship him. And when he finds out when this took place and the age of the child, that's when he has the massive slaughter done among those who were born around that age so that he will not have to deal with this king of opposition, protecting his own. Now, certainly in our day and time, people are not out there slaughtering children on behalf of trying to save and preserve their own kingship. But people nonetheless, every single year, there are seven and a half billion people around the face of this globe. It is estimated that about four billion out of the seven and a half billion really live in opposition to God's king. That is, they will celebrate Christmas, they will celebrate the holiday, but really they have no need for Jesus. They really have no desire for Jesus. They have no need for God. They have no desire for God. I'll live my life. I'll take care of my own. I I do my thing. I mean, this is the way I lived until I was a teenager. I had no, uh, I had, Jesus was never even on my radar. It was not on the radar of our family. Jesus was never mentioned at Christmas time. He was never celebrated uh, around our Christmas tree. There was no nativity scene in our house. Nothing. It's not that we were like, you know, standing up and puffing out our chest in direct opposition against God. It's just that we really had no need for him. So we thought. 
And so I hear people say things all the time. I'm doing fine on my own. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. The Bible's an outdated book. It's just got a lot of religious principles. Try to make you feel guilty about yourself and, and, and try to make you feel oppressed over yourself. And I, I really don't need that in my life. And so people will celebrate some 4 billion people in opposition to this King of Kings. Not that they're going to stand up and protest. Some may. Some do. You know, they're the, always the atheists out there. They want to strip all the government prob, you know, uh, properties of every nativity scene that they can and try to, you know, make Christmas something other than what it is really about. So many people will celebrate Christmas this way. This is the way they will look at the gift. It's great. It's wonderful. But I really don't need it. And then there are those like the Jewish priest who they didn't oppose Jesus. They just kind of dismissed him. This kind of blew him off. I mean, if somebody came from the east and they're asking about where's going to be born the king of the Jews, and they say and they quote out of Micah 5 2 and say, Well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, don't you think it would have behooved the Jewish teachers of the law and the Pharisees to make that five mile journey from Jerusalem to Beth Bethlehem to find out if this king of the Jews has actually been born? There were over 300 prophecies concerning. Jesus and many of those prophecies were fulfilled through the birth of Jesus and the events that took place in the first couple of years of his life, and they didn't even think about going and traveling and seeing, well, maybe there is something to this. You see, this is the way many, many times even Christians can celebrate Christmas we know Christmas is about Jesus, but Jesus has become more of an addendum to our life than actually being the king over our lives. We want to enjoy all that is available to us through Christ, but I just don't want to have to sacrifice anything for it. It's kind of like the man and woman who have been dating a long time, and she wants to get married, but her boyfriend, who truly loves her, uh, doesn't want to to lose her, but yet he doesn't really want to make the commitment of marriage because after all, he wants to keep his options open in case, you know, he's missing out on something and there might be something better on down the road that he could opt for. And so he doesn't really want to make that commitment. So usually what this young man will do with this young girl who, who wants to be married and wants to make that level of commitment is say something, well, how about we just live together? And the translation is, how can I get all the benefit of some marriage without having to make any commitment and any deep abiding sacrifices. So I thought about that. So I wrote some vows for them. Here's how they would go. I, John, take you, Mary, to be my cohabitant, cohabitant, to have sex with and to share bills with. I'll be around while things are good, but probably won't be if things get tough. If you should get a cold, I'll run to the drugstore for some medicine. If you get sick to the point where you can no longer meet my needs, then I'll have to move on. Forsaking many others, I will be more or less faithful to you for as long as it feels good to me. If we should break up, it doesn't mean it wasn't special for me. I commit to live with you for as long as this thing works out. This is kind of how we approach our relationship with Jesus sometimes. I'm all in, Lord. I'll follow you as long as things are good. I'll follow you as long as I get what I want. I'll follow you as long as you hold up your end of the, of the deal, the bargain. I'll follow you 
And so we are afraid to passionately pursue him with our whole hearts because we know that if we make that commitment, it's like we're putting ourselves on the line and it's going to require energy and it's going to require time and it's going to require money and it's going to require sacrifice. And, but Lord, I, I, and my life is so busy and I'm so wound up with so many different things. And what happens eventually over time is that spiritual apathy sets in and I just kind of lose that loving feeling. With Jesus. He's just there. Yes, my, my heart is reawakened, my conscience is alerted every Christmas season about the fact that God has given me this beautiful gift, the gift of Jesus, and all that He has done for us, and we celebrate it, and then the new year comes around and we make our New Year's resolutions and life begins to happen. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets set on the back burner of our lives once again. And that's where he will remain unless something tragic happens in my life where I need to grab hold of him. But there are those who are like the wise men. And you, you come and you worship him as your king Worship is what? It is an act of surrender. And Romans 12, 1, it says, based on God's mercy, and that basis was everything Paul had talked about in Romans chapters 1 through 11 about how we needed Christ and Jesus came into the world and all God has done for us. On the basis of God's mercy, now let's present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. And so when the wise men arrive at the house of Joseph and Mary, and you'll notice it comes and it says they bowed and they worshiped. Worship is an act of surrender. It is the ultimate act of surrender. It's not worship like, okay, I come in and I see words on a screen and I'm, I'm singing those words, but as I'm singing those words, my, my mind is a mile, you know, different ways and thinking about all the different things I've got to do for the day and then I, I kind of come back into focus and then I drift out and come back into, no, this is like they, they're coming and, and they're bowing before and, and by the way, there probably weren't three wise men. We only assume that because there were three gifts, this would have been a huge entourage of probably many magi, and as and we'll talk about that later, and they come, and they bow, and they worship, and after their worship, they have first surrendered their hearts over to this king who has been born of the Jews, and once they have surrendered their hearts, once they have laid their bodies on the altar of sacrifice, then they present their gifts to him, because they're coming for the right reason and out of the right motive. Now, this act of surrender is called many things in Scripture. It's called you know, consecration, making Jesus your Lord, uh, taking up your cross, dying to self, yielding to the Holy Spirit. But it's all one and the same. God wants all of our lives, not part of it. 95% is really not all of it. And this is where people often push back. It's like, man, what does God want from me? All of you? 100%? I mean, think about this. Um, there is no halfway or partial surrender in marriage. Let's say, for example, my wife and I, you know, we've been married 43 years, and let's say next year I say, baby, you know what? As I think back over our marriage these last many, many years, 
I just want you to know that I have been 95% faithful to you all of those years. Now, 95 in any school you go into is an A. So I'm serving her notice that she has a level A husband. Now, do you think she's going to hop up and down and say, Woo, man, my husband is a level A guy. No, she's thinking about that 5%. What do you mean 95%? Isn't it supposed to be 100%? That's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for partial surrender. I'm looking for absolutely, I'm all in, 100%, all the time, all the way, until God takes us home. That's the level of surrender Jesus, our King, deserves. That's what we are to bring to the table. Most of us want to have what I call the gift card approach with God. With a gift card, you know exactly what you're on the hook for, right? Like if I buy you a $25 gift card for your birthday and I give it to you and you go out and buy yourself an 84-inch, you know, top-of-the-line plasma TV and you stick it on your wall and you, you plunk down that gift card, and you still owe $1,975? Not on me. Right? you got to pay the rest of the bill. I don't have to pay the rest of the bill. You use my $25 gift card to buy a $2,000 TV. That's not my problem. That's your issue. And so that's the way we kind of like, like to approach God, because that way, what? I'm in control. I just kind of delve it out, my, my gift cards to God. You know, God, I... I attended church today, I read my Bible, I did my prayers, I, I, and so we kind of delve out these, see, Lord, I'm so surrendered, I'm so, you know, I'm just so into Jesus, and, and these are the things I'm doing, and, and so now I'm in control, and God's saying, no, 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 you, you don't understand, I don't receive gift cards, what I want is a blank check. Now, for those of you who are young, younger, Checks are those things you studied in school back in history class that you write out, you know, on a piece of paper. Now we have apps, right? An app means that I can transfer money out of my account into your account, and, but I'm still in control of all of this. So rather than gift cards, we use apps in our day and time. Listen, God, God requires full, unrestricted access. This is what surrender is about. He doesn't want our gift cards, whether it's church attendance, moral purity, generous tithes, or missionary activity. He wants us. Totally. Because until you come with surrender, totally, you don't receive the righteousness of Jesus, totally. So how do you know that? Because there's a story in the Bible that tells us that. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? What did he ask him? What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus tell him? He started rallying off the commandments. He says, you need to be keeping these commandments. And this rich young ruler looks at Jesus with all the gumption he had. And he says, well, Lord, I, I've, I've kept all those in my entire life. I don't know how he did it with a straight face, but he did. I kept them all my entire life. So rather than Jesus getting in an argument about whether or not he had or not, which he hadn't because he's like us, he has a you know, depraved heart, 
So certainly didn't keep every commandment perfectly all of his life. But rather than Jesus pointing that out, Jesus just simply unveiled to him in a very practical way how this isn't true. That what he was asking Jesus for, he wanted everything that Jesus was about to sacrifice himself for, eternal life, but he did not want to give Jesus the full surrender of his heart and life. So Jesus says to him, hey, all right, well, tell you what you do. You just sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Why would Jesus tell him that? Is that a work salvation? Not at all. Rather than confronting his own lack of self-awareness regarding his heart directly, Jesus decided to uncover it in another way. And so Jesus just tags him over the one area of his life that he had complete control over, his money. It isn't amazing how often Jesus talked about money and possessions because he used that as a spiritual barometer that will unveil for you quicker than anything your level of surrender. And so Jesus says, this one thing you lack, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. What did he lack? He lacked Jesus. He needed Christ. He needed the righteousness of Jesus. That's the only way any of us inherit eternal life is for Jesus to make that great exchange where he accepts our sin debt and in response gives to us his righteousness. And the way that we receive the righteousness of Jesus is to surrender our entire life over to him like you're writing a blank check to him and saying, Lord, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to bring, but I I need you, I need your righteousness, I I need relationship with you. And Jesus says, that's the deal that I'll make. Not this, well, you know, I prayed a prayer one day back 35 years ago. I haven't darkened the door of a church. I haven't read the Bible. I haven't prayed. I haven't walked with Jesus for 35 years. But you know, I prayed that prayer back when I was a child. That is not true salvation. You will never convince me of that. You'll never convince Jesus of that because Jesus never put things in the fine print. He always just laid it on the line. Listen, if you're going to be a follower of mine, if you're going to surrender your heart to mine, it is all or nothing. Don't put your hand to the plow and part way through, turn back and go the other way. No, 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 no. True followers of mine, those who are surrendered totally to me are the ones who will put their hand to the plow and they'll keep it on the plow until the very end. You say, well, you mean tell me somebody can't backslide, they can't start living a carnal life? not saying that at all. They can. They can be an authentic believer and start living like an unbeliever. But if those, those who are in that situation, when they find themselves in that situation, is that A, either uh, God begins to intervene and some discipline begins to come in their life because God's not there to pay them back. He's there to draw them back into that walk and into that relationship. Hebrews chapter 11 and 12, just read about that. And so, you know, God's going to do something about it, but surrender. What keeps us from surrendering? I didn't put this on your outline, but I'm going to give you three of them really quickly. Number one's fear. Number one reason why people will not surrender their hearts fully, totally, absolute over to the Lord Jesus Christ is because we're afraid. We're afraid that if we surrender everything to Jesus, it means we'll never be happy. 
Well, if I'm not in control of my life, you know, I can't tell you how many people say, well, you know, if I, if I, actually, if I really get serious about this, this relationship with Jesus and I surrender everything and, I, you know, he's just like Lord and king over my life and, and, and he will call me to be a missionary in Africa somewhere. I just know it. I can't do it because I'm afraid that's what's going to happen to me. Have you ever heard somebody ever said that to you? Absolutely. Can't do it. Don't know what God will. I mean, I, I just don't think I can be happy and be totally surrendered to God and let him have control, let him call the shots, let him move my life, and let him direct me. I just can't do it. The second fear is that if I surrender everything to Jesus, then, man, he'll, he'll leave me desolate. You know, I'll just like, man, I'll just, I won't be able to take care of myself. I won't be able to take care of my family, my future. And so, you know. They hu- so people huddle around Fox News, CNN every night, anxiously worried about society and where it's heading and all these things that are going on around us. And, and we think, oh, if, if I totally surrender to Jesus unconditionally, then, you know, what, what is the fear that comes to your heart? I, I won't be as happy as if I were in charge or somehow I'll end up abandoned, desolate, and needy if Jesus is in charge. And again, nothing exposes this quicker than money. Because it exposes our level of surrender. For some people, money is happiness. And when you get a little extra, you want to spend it. For some people, money is security. When you get a little extra, you want to save it. And in God's sense of humor, he always puts a husband and wife together that are on the opposite end of the pole. Right? So when you got your government stimulus, the spender wanted to do what? Let's buy that TV. Let's buy that car. Let's go on that vacation. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's spend it. And the saver said, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to open up a mutual fund. We're going to put this away for a rainy day. And so you probably got into conflict over what happened to that stimulus check because the spender versus the saver, right? And this is because the spender, for the spender, money is a way to, to satisfaction in the present, to the savior, saver. Uh, money is a way to security for the future. And God just sits back and, and he just kind of laughs. <laughs> like, look at those fools. Let me put fear this way. When I was a kid, I don't remember how old I was, but my uncle took me to um, buy it's, it's, uh, dog racing. I mean, I, I don't see much about dog racing anymore. I don't know if it still goes on, but back in the day it did. You know, these greyhound dogs were groomed and trained to, tri- to, to chase this mechanical rabbit around the track. And, of course, you would bet on it like you were betting on horses. And so, uh, you know, this, you, you, you can imagine these greyhounds, they're in their cages. I mean, they're groomed for this. And that rabbit comes out of the, their blind side. They see that rabbit, and they're just like banging against the cage, kind of like horses do. You know, they're ready to, to leap after the rabbit. And sure enough, the, the cages open up, and there they go. They're chasing this rabbit around the track. And, and they are chasing it just as hard as they can, thinking, man, if I can just get a hold of that rabbit, if I can just get a hold of that rabbit, if I just get a hold of that rabbit. And then, you know, the rabbit makes its trip around the the, the track, and of course, the first dog in first place, second place, and third place. Can you imagine what the dogs are saying to one another when they're back in the kennels after the race is over? They're probably thinking, man, I'll tell you what, Ralph, I almost had that rabbit today. I mean, I mean, I was like this close to getting that rabbit. You, you know what? I was so close to him. I wonder if we'll get him tomorrow. And so they do this day after day after day. They chase this proverbial rabbit around the track, hoping that one day they're going to get it. They're going to, they're, it's, man, this is going to be great. It's going to be I mean, we live for this stuff. 
Once in a while, that rabbit malfunctions and a dog catches it and chews into it. And guess what he discovers? It's fake. That dog will never race again because he has no desire to do so. Because what I've been chasing is just a facade. And we sit back as human beings and we think to ourselves, those stupid dogs. Those stupid dogs. And yet we spend our entire lives doing the same thing. We chase after the things we think are going to bring us happiness and security and significance. It's the car. It's the house. It's the children. It's the bigger car. It's the bigger house. It's the better wife. It's the better partner. It's the better and we just and once we get it, we 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 like chew on it. But when we chew on it, it's, it still has not brought us happiness. Still hasn't brought us security. Still hasn't helped us with our you know um, significance in life. And so we go after another, and we go after another. And so Satan, our entire lives, keeps throwing these rabbits out in front of us that we keep chasing, thinking that someday, some way. I'm going to get the rabbit that is going to bring me ultimate peace and security and significance in my life, the happiness that I've been longing for, the joy that I am hoping for, the peace that my heart yearns for. But in the end, when life comes to the end, we discover that all of that is not in a thing. It has all been wrapped up in a person. And his name is Jesus. This is what the whole book of Ecclesiastes was about. Solomon said, I did it all. I tried it all. I had it all. But in the end, it meant nothing. Stupid humans. <laughs> the gift. See, I remember as a child, was closed with this. I remember as a child, um, I wanted a bicycle. It wasn't just any bicycle. It was a Schwinn cherry red um, bicycle, and it had like shocks on the back, like the seat you'd sit down. It was like the shocks. It had like a little stick shift. It was three-speed on the column, right? So, you know, I just thought, man, if I just had this bike, if I just had this bike. And so I wanted it for Christmas, and I, I had a catalog. I'd open up the catalog, because at this point in my life, I knew who Santa was. And so I would make sure that my mother would see me looking at this catalog picture every single night, because I just knew that if I got this cherry red stingray bicycle from Schwinn, that would be the gift of all gifts, and I would never need another gift again. So I thought. So when I barreled down the steps on that Christmas morning, just knowing in my heart of hearts that bike would be sitting there, but it wasn't. Because my mother couldn't afford a bike like that. It wasn't in the cards. And so in the midst of my disappointment, as only a child can be disappointed, I thought to myself, hmm, wonder what happened. 
I never questioned my mother's love, never questioned any of those things. My mom sacrificed more than any woman I know. You know, when you're raising five kids by yourself, that's a recipe for insanity. But I knew ultimately that really the, that gift wasn't it. It wasn't going to do me, for me what I thought it was going to do. Because here's what I did. I went out that summer and started mowing lawns. And I saved my own money. And I bought my own bike. And you know what? It didn't do it for me. And I learned very early on in life, you can chase that proverbial rabbit all you want. And you can nab it and grab it. But once you've got it, it may satisfy for a little while. But that's not the ultimate gift. You want to know that one of the greatest gifts I ever received that forever changed the course of my life was a Bible my grandmother gave me, the only Christian I knew of in my family. And she died when I was in sixth grade. Little did she know that one day, as a teenager contemplating suicide, I would open up that Bible. And God would speak into my heart and move my family next door to a family who were Christians who invited me to church. And through the course of those days and years, Jesus would become my greatest gift and forever change the course and the direction of my life. And that day, when I laid it all on the line, and surrendered everything I was over to him. That was the day that peace and hope and joy and satisfaction entered into my soul and forever marked me. And I pray that it will forever mark you. Let's pray together. Now, there are some questions that I've put on your outline that I want you to think about this week. What are you giving to the, to the Lord? Your best or what is left over? Whose kingdom are you really investing in, yours or Christ's? Are you willing to put your yes on the table to your heavenly Father? Because the moment you do, the moment you bring that heart of surrender, you receive back from God things like peace and power and contentment and satisfaction. All those things our hearts yearn for. You have a heavenly father. You have a king who has the ability to supply with you anything your heart needs, anything your life needs. And it might be that your life needs, your heart needs to sacrifice something, to put something on the line, to, to allow Jesus' rightful place on the throne of your heart so that this Christmas season, will not be, oh, we celebrate Jesus for a few weeks and then we put him on the back burner of our life for the rest of the year, only to do it all over again. 
next year. I don't know about you, but I want to be like the wise men whose hearts are just filled with worship. Worship that results in surrender. Surrender that lays it all on the line and says, Jesus, whatever, whenever, wherever you lead, I will go. That he will help us put everything that we possess, our material possessions, our families, our gifts, our talents, our abilities, to put them in proper perspective as we serve our King. Because one day he's coming back. And he will have tattooed on his thigh the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he will rule and reign from this earth forever and ever and ever. He is our King. Now, surrender your heart to him. This morning, if you've never surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, I beg you, surrender your life to him today. For in exchange you receive his righteousness, his forgiveness, his cleansing, his life through the person of the Holy Spirit that will forever change the course and the direction of your life. There is nothing this world has to offer you that will give you what you're ultimately looking for. The Bible says that God has established eternity in your heart and that is what you yearn for is an eternal God who can bring eternal satisfaction. And he did so through his gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive him today. I pray this for every person who's watching, oh God. Amen.